You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Gabor. Hi, Bob. Nice to be with you. Good to be with you. Thanks for taking the time. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You're a Gabor Mate, actually. Probably a commonly mispronounced name, I would think. Don't a lot of people say Mate, and it's really Mate? Actually, people... um most of them mispronounce my first name. They call it Gabor rather than Gabor. Well, that's thanks to Eva and Jaja, right? That's thanks to them, yeah, fellow uh, Hungarians. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, I think I now have it 100% correct, Gabor Mate. Yeah. And uh, you're a very well-known uh, physician and writer, known for writing about uh, physical health, mental health, the connections between the two. Uh, you, um, you know, some years back, I think, gained a lot of prominence as an expert on uh, addiction, wrote a book called In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts about that. Uh, but the book we're going to be talking about today is your new one. It's called The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Uh, it's a collaboration with your son, Daniel, who also did the uh, uh, the narration on the audio. He did a very good job, I, I got to say. Uh, he may that, he may have a second calling there. Um it must be very gratifying to have a book that's not only a, a New York Times bestseller, but a collaboration with with one of your children, right? It is. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a accomplished writer myself, but I really couldn't have written this book without uh, Daniel's help. It's just a big topic and it needed lightening up and it needed, a, you know, a, a different perspective sometimes. So it was a real a pleasurable, sometimes difficult, but ultimately very satisfying collaboration. Most good collaborations are difficult in my experience. And I would imagine that being related to the uh, collaborator doesn't make things easier. Um, so let's talk about the book. Uh, you know, some books have titles that almost demand that the first question in a conversation with an author be to elaborate on the title. Uh, so I'm going to do that. What, uh, what is the, I mean, I'm going to ask that question. What, what is, what are misunderstandings about the normal? What What do you mean when you say the myth of normal? Well, the biggest misunderstanding is that we confuse normal with healthy and natural. Now, that confusion is pardonable as a physician. Uh, I will talk about a normal range of temperature or a normal range of body chemistry um, or a normal range of blood pressures within which human life is possible, outside of which it is threatened. So normal equates to healthy and natural. However, we then transpose that to the rest of our lives. I mean, we also think that what we're used to, what is normal, what is the norm, is also healthy and natural. I'm arguing that what is normal in this culture is neither healthy nor natural. In fact, I think it's toxic for people. So what is normal here is the very opposite of healthy and natural. Okay. And yeah, that's, one thing that's interesting about the book is you're you're tracing our troubles both to the culture that uh, we find ourselves in, you know, as adults, maybe, but also often to experiences in our past. That's where uh, the trauma comes in and the subtitle subtitle is trauma, illness and healing in a toxic culture. Want to hold up the book, by the way, if you have a copy, uh, okay. it's it's sure. uh, very I happen to have one. This is you happen myth. to have one. What a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, the Myth of Normal. Uh, bright. I like it. Uh, the um, So I, I think we should we should maybe start by talking about 
trauma. That, that's also an important part of your analysis of addiction, uh, I gather. And and you, you've done a lot of work on trauma. And maybe we could start uh, by putting it in the context of your own childhood. Uh, sure. you, 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 you know, in general, the book is, is very, uh, you're, you're very good about self-disclosure. You're very candid about yourself. Sometimes you're hard on yourself. You talk about ways that maybe you could have been a better parent and so on. Uh, wait, wait, you, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> Where am I being hard on myself? I'm just, oh, I'm just you, discovering the way it was. I'm not being hard on myself. Exactly. Uh, I know what you mean. You mean, uh, I mean, you describe your your situation in ways that might commonly be interpreted as being hard on yourself because you point to things you know maybe you could you say things like uh uh maybe you you know there 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 are things you could have done differently as a parent yeah. uh there are ways in which i mean there's there's an episode i want to talk about where uh, a bunch of shamans in south america tell you like <laughs> you know you're you're just like you're too grim, man. Too much negative energy. I want to talk about all that. But that's what I mean. I take your point that it's not. Uh, I mean, what you're making is 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 uh, a distinction between being honest with yourself about uh, your past and your present and your nature and everything and blaming yourself and being like down on yourself. And you don't recommend blaming yourself and being down on yourself. No, I, no, I don't. I, I, I used to, but I don't look as a parent. I passed on my trauma to my kids. We just do that. That's what we do. That's not the same as blame. That's just saying that's how it is. And it's taking responsibility. I did my best when I was a parent, and that happened to be my best. And that best was constrained by, as you suggest, my own early experiences. And, uh, you know, I mean, you've written a book about Buddhism. The Buddha abandoned his child and his wife, for God's sakes. Now, there's yeah. no way there's no way that would have at least in the short I know in the long term they're reconciled and he brought them into the fold but I would think neither the wife nor the infant would have been too pleased by being abandoned and and the Buddha himself as um, your fellow Buddhist um, Mark Epstein uh, the psychiatrist points out in his book uh, The Trauma of Everyday Life the Buddha himself was traumatized because his mother died when he was a week old you know okay. and so then he leaves his child, you know, and and this is multi-generational trauma being passed on, you know, right. and we just do that. But if you understand the sources of it, there's no room for blame. It, it's just how it happens. And 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 uh, so, I mean, no way do I consider I'm being myself, uh, I'm beating myself up, I mean, in no way do I consider that I'm being hard on myself when I disclose uh stuff in my life where i don't necessarily show up as a hero you know mm -hmm. um and whether that's in relation to my children or to my wife or even to my work uh fact is there's stuff there that um was driven by unconscious forces which made me behave in ways that weren't particularly um good uh, mm -hmm. or, or i should say healthy mm -hmm. Yeah, there is, uh, you know, and and I mean, speaking of that and like blaming people and things, uh, let's before we get back to trauma, let, let's kind of jump to this, the, the cultural critique part of of the book. Yeah. Um, you I think you'd agree that your perspective is left of center. You're you're uh, not not 
a big fan of everything, every effect that capitalism has had on the world. It's it's safe to say there are some some politicians whose behavior you don't applaud. There's a lot about uh, the current culture that you don't think is healthy, but you you take pains uh, not to innocent, not to blame uh, the the politicians, uh, the capitalists, whoever, uh, whom some on the on the left really would be very hard on, right? Uh, because because you um, you see them all as victims. You you see, and, and which leads to a, a kind of a, a tension that you are, uh, uh, I guess, challenging us to reconcile. That on the one, there's a sense in which we're all victims, but you don't think it's healthy for us to think of ourselves fundamentally as victims is that right no it's not helpful because that's then to to, to to see myself as a victim uh is to identify with my suffering and to say i am my suffering but nobody is their suffering everybody's more than that and uh as far as um politicians and capitalists well look i simply point out that that's hardly new information that food corporations conspire to create addictive products to hook people into sugar, salt, and fat, which is unhealthy for them and kills them, but they don't give a damn because they want to make money. I just point that out. It's just a reality. It's, you know, you can say blaming or not blaming, it's just how it is. I can point out that uh, corporations conspire to keep news about climate change that their own scientists had discovered decades ago. But they've kept that information from the public. In fact, they tried publicly to discredit the very science that their own researchers have identified. I just point that out. I point out that the drug companies uh, have knowingly manufactured opiates and advertised them to physicians as lot less addictive than other opiates. And that has caused a lot of deaths. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what's being left of center about that. I'm just stating reality, you know. now. It's only left to center in a society that is tilted towards the corporate view, and you're not supposed to talk about these things. I'm hardly the first one, but even this distinction left to center, I mean, I'll own to my own political views and my perspectives, and I'll do nothing to hide them. But even the even that designation left to center assumes that there's a kind of a center, and then you can be to the right of it, to the left of it. But that center in this society is skewed towards the uh, mainstream corporate view of things. And they also happen to be the one who own news corporations and television networks. You know, do I, am I creating that reality or is that reality? So what does it even mean left of center, except in a certain context? Mm -hmm. And like the Buddha said, you know, um, everything is created in the mind everything is thought in the lead so as soon as they identify me as left to center now you're pigeonholing me in a certain um area mm -hmm. that's defined by this society and people people immediately have emotional reactions to that based on their own perceptions those emotional reactions are either positive or negative but forget the designation let's just talk about what i'm saying and what i'm not saying that would, that's what I would. Okay. The, uh, the, my point on the, uh, you know, your, your attitude toward politicians, capitalists, and anyone else uh, whose behavior you may think is in some sense unfortunate. Is including, that, including my own. Including your own. Is that, 
you know, there's a reason for it. It, it, it it's like, and, and that's what I meant by not not blaming him and, and and saying there's a sense in which they are victims, even though you don't think it's necessarily healthy for us to think of ourselves as victims. There's a reason for the way people are. You you tend to uh, locate trauma, uh, childhood trauma, as the source of a lot of this, right? I mean, even for the rapacious capitalist, whoever, uh, you think that's often what's going on? Well, I think here's where the... Um... <clears throat> Look, any system will create personalities and and the values and promote behaviors that serve its survival. That's just a function of any system. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not the plot or the conspiracy of any one particular group of people. That's just how the system works. In that system, now, if you have a system whose essential self-identified value is profit, then you're going to get people at the top whose interest is profit, regardless of the impact of human life and human health. That's just how it is. Okay. Uh, Now, people who will then rise to success in that system very often have to ignore their own humanity, at least in their work lives. Who would do that? Somebody who's shut down from their own humanity owing to childhood experience. So the needs of the system and childhood experiences um, kind of um, work together to create certain kind of personalities. As far as victimhood, look, I could talk to you about Hitler's childhood. He was a terribly abused child, terribly abused. But does anybody look upon Hitler as a victim? You know, it's it, forget this idea of victimhood. I, I don't deal in those terms. I just look at, here's what happens. Here are the factors that shape human life. Here are the factors that shape human psychology and human behavior. Let's look at them, let's understand them. And let's create conditions in which more nourishing and more healthy dynamics uh, are the rule. That's that's my only interest here. Okay. Um, now, speaking of Hitler, I, I think one way to get at what you mean by trauma and start exploring that concept is to talk about your own childhood. Sure. Uh, and uh, so, why don't you do that now? Were you you were born in Germany, and then and then your parents very very quickly went to uh, Budapest. No, or you no. were born in Hungary. No, no, we're Hungarians. I was right. born in Hungary, and Hungary was an ally of Germany in the Second. Okay. Um, and I was born in January nineteen forty four, and by that time. The Germans had exterminated, largely exterminated, the Jewish population in the neighboring countries. Mm-hmm. Czechoslovakia, in Poland, Ukraine, Russia, and so on. But Hungary being an ally of Germany, Germany didn't occupy Hungary. Until, until March of 1944, which is when the Hungarian government began to think about that maybe this war is not going very well. Maybe we want to leave the German alliance. At which point the Germans said, no, you don't. And they occupied Hungary. I was okay. two months age at the time. And so then I spent the first year of my life till the end of January 45 as a Jewish infant on the Nazi occupation. And in the three months between March and June of 44, the Germans managed to exterminate half a million Hungarian Jews, including my grandparents. And we, my mother and I, living in Budapest, they had not got to emptying Budapest of his Jews yet. So we survived. And then in June of 44, the German deportation stopped because of international pressure, actually. 
and uh, and so then my mother and I continued to live in Budapest. But then in October of that year, uh, far right wing fascist, incredibly anti Semitic, violent, dark minded party took over the power, and at which point the suffering of the Jews was redoubled or re quadrupled. More killings started, and so on. That's that was my first year of life, and my mother had to look after me under those conditions with food deprivation, constant threat of death uh, or deportation, grieving her parents' death in Auschwitz, not knowing whether my father was dead or alive because he was in forced labor with the Hungarian army somewhere. <clears throat> Those are the circumstances which are extremely stressful for the mother and therefore stressful for the child. And then, as I describe in the first chapter of this book, when I was 11 months old, she gave me to a complete stranger in the street. I stood at that very spot a few months ago in Budapest where she did that. The building is still there. She gave me a total stranger to convey me to some relatives living under somewhat better circumstances. So that was my first year of life. And then you wound up reunited with your mother, but only after some, after a month or two, I gather. And About five or six weeks, yeah. And things continue to be difficult. And then uh, there was a, a second, um, I mean, uh, when you were, I guess, I don't know, 11 or 12 or something was yeah. when uh, you were you were in Hungary. You had been taught that the Soviets were the good guys in school. And uh, suddenly uh, the Soviets moved into Hungary forcefully, uh, like and and uh, you had to reassess. Well, and so, the, so the Russians. After the Second World War, the Russian occupation persisted. Uh, and um, in 56, and, and they imposed a very brutal Stalinist dictatorship on the country in mm -hmm. 1949. And in 56, there was a rebellion against that, the Hungarian uh, Revolution in October 56. And then all of a sudden, the Soviet army that has saved my life, that literally has saved my life, Mm -hmm. and whose uh, ideology I'd bought into as a child growing up in communist Hungary. When the rebellion happened, within a week they came back in and they crushed it very brutally. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of a sudden my heroes became villains. So that's the first of a series of disillusionments that I went through on the political scale um, in, my, uh, in my youth. Okay, now, now do I have it right that your view of your trauma, and I know you emphasize that we should think of trauma not as the events that led to the trauma, but think of the trauma as the wound, as the as the, uh, and uh, that that you think that uh, you were left not, I guess, not convinced that you're worthy of love or needing to do things to earn the affection or approving of people to to uh, approval of people to to an inordinate extent. Uh, is that is that the basic idea? Yeah. So when your mother is depressed and stressed and uh, can barely assure your survival, um, you don't get a sense that you're much fun to be with, you know. And then when you give in to a total stranger in the street, all of a sudden, what message do you get? Mm -hmm. Of course, it was the greatest act of love my mother could have committed. Imagine a 24-year-old young woman. 
handing a baby to a stranger. Imagine that, you know? Um, it's, a, it's an incredible act of love, but the infant doesn't experience it that way. For the infant, he's being abandoned. And then he's, then I get close to the caregivers who looked after me during those six weeks, and then I'm separated from them again. The message I get is that I'm not wanted. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the wound. So the, the and trauma, that's what trauma means. Trauma literally means a wound. And so that the wound is not that I was given to a stranger, the wound that I made it mean that I wasn't, I wasn't wanted. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you're not wanted, then you find ways of compensating for that. And one way of, you know, and, and also there's tremendous pain around being abandoned and not being wanted. Then you want, then this is when addictions come in. When addictions are always about soothing the pain. And I don't care what you're addicted to, whether it's opiates or work or pornography or eating or gambling or shopping. It's always about soothing pain. So there's a lot of pain. And when the pain breaks through, then you turn to external ways. This is where the Buddhist concept of attachment comes into it. Because you get attached to all these external things. Mm -hmm. Fill the hole within you. And that hole was created by the trauma. So whether it's addictions or, you know, um, compensating for not being wanted, demanding special attention because you didn't get attention that you needed, these are all sourced in early childhood experiences. Okay. Now, a question you probably encountered on addiction uh, from skeptics is, uh, is, well, isn't addiction like not that hard to explain i mean some drugs are going to make everyone feel better than they felt the no, moment yeah, before yeah, yeah right but, yeah but these skeptics are just ignorant the reality is that most people who try most drugs never get addicted mm -hmm. so the, the drugs no drug causes addiction i used to work in palliative care um before i worked in addictions and i gave large quantities of opiates to people in severe pain at the end of life now let's say somebody has severe pain um, so they needed opiates, but then we gave them a spinal block, mm -hmm. which eliminated the pain. We can get them off their opiates really, really quickly, and they didn't crave, they didn't get addicted. So the drugs themselves, and I gave people levels of opiates that the average drug addict can only dream about, <laughs> you know, but they didn't get addicted. This is not even controversial. So no drug causes addiction. That's a complete myth. It's a drug in combination with a needy individual where they need emotion, soothing for emotional pain. And when I worked in Vancouver's downtown east side, which is North America's most notorious area of drug use, by the way, bar none, in 12 years of work, I had not a single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the large scale studies, as I make clear in this book and my previous work is, are not even controversial. The more childhood trauma somebody experiences, exponentially the greater the risk for addiction as an adult. Of course, because as I say in this book, the question is not why the addiction, but why the pain? Addictions are all about escaping pain, and nobody chooses to be in pain. Uh, people who are not in emotional pain, needing to, when they get opiates, they want to get off them as soon as they can. Mm -hmm. You know, and and um, and nobody, and and no, nor is it a genetic disease. That's just scientific nonsense. I'm not gonna. I could tell you the science now, but I'm just asserting mm -hmm. that 
Nobody's ever found an addiction gene, or when they do, three years later, it turned out they found nothing. So it just, addictions are all about pain. That's what it's about. So in the case of your trauma, do you trace the effects all the way up to your your being a very kind of high-achieving uh, adult uh, intent on, on, you know, always doing more work? And in your case, given your chosen profession, you know, helping more people and so on. But uh, I take it uh, you do see consequences lasting that long. Well, the consequences last until you work them through. And you can go to your death at age 89 and still be stuck in traumatic imprints. Um, in, in terms of the high achievement in my life, you know, I don't pin it on any one particular dynamic, but there's a number of different contributing streams that flow into it. One of them is my genuine desire to help humanity. Mm -hmm. That's my calling. That's a calling. That's something that calls me. But a calling is not compulsive. I can be called and I can choose to respond or not to respond to the call. Um, or I can be driven. Now, when I'm driven to do something, I don't have a choice in the matter. I'm driven like a leaf in the wind. <laughs> and in terms of my workaholism, that was, wasn't just my desire to help humanity. That was my desire or my need to prove that I'm wanted, that I'm worthwhile, that I have the right to exist, which right was questioned from the moment that I was born. Mm -hmm. So that the drivenness is a response to the trauma, the calling is not. So one could be high achieving purely out of drivenness, in which case you end up one of these very successful failures. Uh -huh. People who at the top of the ladder who just crash emotionally or, or, or psychologically. I could achieve a lot because of my calling that I genuinely honor. But the part that made me a driven workaholic, that made me ignore my children for the sake of my work, that's the trauma part. Well, do you ever think, well, maybe, you know, on balance, I helped more people than I would have helped if I hadn't been traumatized? Well, that may be true. But if I had young children again, I would never make, I'd never make that choice. I would never say, I'm going to sacrifice your kids or your happiness or your well-being or my relationship with you on the altar of helping humanity. I would not do that. I would not mm -hmm. choose, no parent would choose to do that. Mm-hmm. So let me, if I could uh, be a little self-indulgent and talk about my own tortured psyche, I, I'd like to do so in a way that might uh, help you expand on the meaning of trauma and why you think it's it's a it's an important word to use. So when yeah. I look back on my own, I mean, one thing about myself that I that that uh, I'm not entirely happy with is the extent to which I worry about what other people think of me now that's a very common human thing i mean to some extent the concern is just built into us it it, it makes sense but there's such no, a thing as no, too much no, no it's not it's not built into us at all okay well we disagree about that but uh but go ahead and elaborate on why you think it isn't i mean i think we're social animals designed by natural selection to live in communities and to uh sustain yeah, the, the esteem of our of people and so on well, it's true that we're social animals and that mm. our relationships are important to us. But worry is not built into us. Okay. Mm. <laughs> um, so, look, what you just told me is about your childhood. Right. Well, I, I haven't told you that part yet, but go ahead. <laughs> yes, 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 you did already. In what way? 
Well, this worry that you have about other people see you. Uh, when you're a child, your life depends on it. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the um, essential non-negotiable needs of the human child is to be fully accepted in a warm attachment relationship unconditionally. Not because they're good, compliant, nice, good-looking, successful, cute, any of that. Just because they are. The child who gets that unconditional loving attention doesn't go on worrying about what people think of them. They develop the confidence that they're okay, just as they are. Okay. And so, so the worry part reflects to me, Bob, the certainty in my mind that when you were a child, your parents, no matter how many they may have loved you, were not capable of giving you unconditional loving acceptance because of their own limitations. Okay. See here, I have a different theory. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't remember my parents that way. Now, that, that, that doesn't mean they weren't that way or that they weren't subtly that way. But the, the part, if I had to conjecturally explain why, I think I, I worry about what people think of me even, even more than the average person. It would have to do with the fact that we moved around a lot during my childhood. My father was in the military. We moved around all the time. You're, and, military, you're a military brat. Uh, I think that's I read right. That. Yeah. It's true. I'm a brat, period, but also a military. <laughs> the uh, uh, And so I could never take for granted my place in the community. It's like you're always showing up and and in a in a in a kind of precarious position. And it right. make, and so, you, you, you know, you pay a lot of attention to what people think about you, what does and doesn't gain acceptance in this environment. To, and, and, and how did that feel to you as a child? Uh. Well, I would imagine, um, I, I think there was a lot of anxiety associated with it. Who did you talk to about that anxiety? Um, who did I talk to about? I talked to, uh, my mother was always ready to listen to my problems. My father was at the office often, you know, as was more common in those days. But so, so, so you did talk to your mother about your anxieties? I talked about to my father too, I remember. Like, like if I, uh, yeah, I remember... What yeah. age? What age? Well, you know, the conversations I remember uh, were about about issues were, I don't know, 11, 12, 13. I mean, I mean, at 12, I, yeah. I moved to a radically new environment, an urban environment. And how about, and, okay, how, and, about, how about when you were four or five years old? Did you talk to your parents? I think so. I mean, look, my mother was was really, uh, uh, really a loving uh really a loving person. Um, I mean, and I guess I'm asking, so you, this is what I noted is you really, really emphasize the parent child thing. And I know that's a school of thought, you know, John Bowlby attachment theory. And there's a, there's a very substantial, uh, body of thought and research about that, but it, it, it just makes sense to me. I mean, the kinds of parents that you say would be not so inclined to inflict trauma, the kind who do give unconditional love, they must exist. There must be, you know, right? People who have them. I, I, I kind of remember my parents that way, but I guess my question is, wouldn't you also think that humans are, uh, you know, developmentally very responsive to the environment created by their peers as they grow up, enter adolescence, and... Let me finish the question. The question I was going to ask you is like, let's suppose I'm right about this and, th and that uh, moving around a lot did uh, did have this effect. What I was going to say was. 
I've always kind of conjectured that that's the case. I'm not sure, but I haven't I haven't used the word trauma. I, I I've thought of it all as almost in a technical sense an adaptive response, which doesn't mean it's healthy, doesn't mean it's good, just means that yeah, I can see why an organism would respond that way. And it's, in a certain sense, a successful way of coping with an uncertain social environment. Um, so I haven't used the word trauma. And, and I guess I kind of have two questions. If I was right about that, A, would it qualify as trauma in your view? And then B, uh, if so, why would you want to use the word trauma rather than describe it the way I've, I've described it, if that makes sense? Well, you, you mentioned the peers. What was your relationship like with your peers? You know, I, I, I usually wound up doing well in my social environment, but mm. I think it took a lot of work and 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 uh, and was stressful. Okay. And you remember talking to your parents about that stress? Uh I, you know. I, I I don't so, remember trying and them not listening. That's for sure. I, I mean, I, you don't remember trying either. Uh, yeah, I don't have a great memory. I remember okay, well, like well, well, like well, like, well, like like if I was like like if there was like if there was like uh uh you know like a bully or something. I remember talking about that. Like mm -hmm. uh you know, and and they were very very open and responsive. Uh, but well, but I. What kind yeah. of response? What kind of response did you get? Um, I don't know. Just a willingness to. Uh, I, I I don't remember exactly. And I didn't. I didn't. It's not like I got bullied. It's just that you you inevitably encounter. It's like you move to an urban environment. It's very okay. different. It's more rough and tumble. Uh, you know. And I, uh, you know, I remember talking to them about that. Can I ask how your parents' relationship was with each other? Seemed good, you know, not, uh, a, <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I feel very self-indulgent. I like talking about myself, but I don't want to, I don't want to move the spotlight too far away from, from your no, book. No, and it's, your no, it's okay. It's okay. You're, uh, actually talking, you're actually talking about my book here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, so, but, but, you know, it, I would say it seemed very good. No one in my family is very demonstrative. I'll say that we're not huggers. My father had a very now. My father had a truly traumatic childhood, right? I mean, his parents. But by, by the time he was fourteen, both of his parents were dead. Three of his siblings were dead. Depression era. His father was a sharecropper. Just abject poverty. That may be why. But on the other hand, our extended family—they're not huggers. Southern Baptists from West Texas are not huggers, at least in this generation. So there's not a lot of not a lot of demonstrative, not a lot of physical demonstration of love. That's true. But but I don't. I just never didn't feel loved. Yeah, well, very few children don't feel loved. Yeah. Uh, it's not a question of whether they're loved or not. It's a question of how clearly seen they are, how clearly understood they are, mm -hmm. clearly listened to they are, and how clearly accepted they are for exactly the way they are. You know, that's mm -hmm. the real question. Missing those factors is wounding to a sensitive child. You know, so trauma doesn't necessarily involve terrible things happening. It's also the absence of the good things that should happen. Children need to be hugged. That's one of their. Oh, needs. I'm sure my I'm sure my mother hugged me a lot. Uh, uh, you know, my, my father wasn't. You know, the males, male hugging is not a big tradition among West Texas Southern Baptists. 
Okay. <laughs> but, okay. All right. Your parents didn't fight, right? No, I, you know, I, 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 I don't remember. I don't remember much of it. Uh, you know, there's a, no, there's I, naturally tension sometimes, but. And there's no drinking in the family. Not to speak of. That's another thing about Southern Baptists. I mean, my, my father drank a little bit, but always in moderation. Yeah. Okay. And you say you don't have a lot of memory for childhood? Well, I just don't have a great memory. I mean, I have a lot of specific memories from, you know, the 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 uh the salient things that happened, the emotionless, emotionally salient things you remember. Okay. So here's what I hear you saying. You've got this what I think I hear you describe as excessive worry about what other people think of you. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? And you ascribe that to the constant uh, moving around and having to adjust to new dynamics and new contexts all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's true. A lot of military kids face that. A lot of them have ADHD, actually. Uh, I've seen a lot of military kids. With yeah, I, I, I kind of have that, too. Yeah. 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 No, ADHD is a stress response. People tune out when they're stressed and there's no help available. That's when people tune out. So it's not a disease that people inherit. That's my first book, by the way, was in ADHD after mm-hmm. I was diagnosed in my 50s. Mm-hmm. And so the, the tuning out is not a disease. It's a coping mechanism, which functions at the time to protect you from the stress, but then creates problems later on. And so when you mention coping mechanisms, all these early childhood mechanisms, coping mechanisms are necessary at the time, but then they start to interfere with your capacity to be present and to function. Mm-hmm. Your excessive worry about what other people think of you, to me, tells me that um, that uh, you did not have the support for those emotions that you needed as a child. Otherwise, you wouldn't be so worried about it. You know, and I'm not blaming your parents, but that's a wound. That's a trauma. You know, and and uh, that doesn't make your parents bad people or or bad parents. It's just that, see, uh, that's the other thing is, even you're moving around. Here's the thing: how human beings evolved, and I talk about this in the book. We involved in small band hunter gatherer groups. Mm-hmm. That's where we lived for millions of years, and hundreds of thousands of years, including our own species. That's how we lived till about fifteen thousand years ago all of us, which means that there was a constant presence of known and caring adults around you, way beyond the parents. Mm-hmm. So it's expression, it takes a village, well, it takes a tribe, it takes a clan, you know, and and so that was constantly being disrupted for you. Mm-hmm. That's a loss, you know, because your attachments were always being threatened and 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 sometimes lost, and then you have to adjust to a new set of circumstances. Your parents would have to, to been extraordinarily present and emotionally available and attuned with you for that not to affect you. That's a trauma. It's a wound. Uh, yeah, okay, so, huh. so, so let's get to that part. I mean, uh, and thank you. I feel guilty. Uh, like I should sit like the check is in the mail. I don't think I should get this much therapy for free. I, I, I think I, whatever your hourly rate is, I'm, I'm happy to pay it. Uh, b- but, um, <laughs> well, you know what, you're paying it back already because you're letting me, uh, promote my book. That's what yeah, you're doing. Okay. Well, I'll let you hold your book up more and, uh, as, as my form of payment, I guess. Uh, but, but, um, 
the, so the word trauma, I mean, part of my question was, uh, is it important that I, would it help me? Do you think it helps me to think of that as a wound? Leave aside why it happened. Oh, uh, look, so, so, so I don't care how you language it. If, if the word trauma denotes for you something too horrible or and, and um, daunting for you to apply it to your experience, don't. Now, I do talk about the two types of traumatic experiences, the big T trauma with the abuse and the violence and the addictions in the family. Then I talk about the small T traumas, which is not about the terrible things that happened, but about the good things that didn't happen, perhaps. But even given that distinction, if the word trauma is just, it's, you know, it's like the word God or like the word anything. When I say God, you have no idea what I mean by it. And I have no idea what you make it mean in your own mind. You know, and the Southern Baptist idea of God is very different from the Sufi idea of God, from the Jewish idea of God, from the, you know, the Catholic idea of God. And maybe yeah, we all use the same word. Well, so words are are, are deceptive sometimes. Then words are sometimes um, diverting. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying that extreme or excessive anxiety about what other people think of you it's a loss of confidence in yourself, and it's a loss of acceptance of yourself as you are. You're having to define yourself by what other people think of you. That's a disconnection from yourself. And I'm saying that's a wound. It's the impact of a wound. And as long as it's not healed, it has a unpleasant, to say the least, effect on your life. Mm -hmm. so whatever you want to call it, it's a dynamic that's worth, from my perspective, addressing and healing so that's yeah. that's my well it also inhibits something you uh stress in the book or is it is is intention with something you stress in the book authenticity yeah right do you want to talk a little about what you mean by authenticity as a as a valuable thing yeah so again we're talking about the meanings of words and uh, authenticity comes from the word auto for self like an automobile is a self-propelled, you know, vehicle, mm -hmm. as opposed to a horse-drawn carriage, you know. So authenticity is ourselves, and that, you know, children have this absolute need. It's an essential developmental need, much denied in our society, uh, much, much um, suppressed in our society. Children have this need to be able to experience all their emotions, whatever they are and have those emotions understood and heard and accepted by the parents. That's just the need of the child. Our brains are wired for a whole set of emotions. Our emotions are not arbitrary. They're essential for us to make sense of the world. Mm -hmm. We have to know what is nourishing and what is not. We have to know what we like and what we don't like. Mm -hmm. um, we have to be able to get close to people or to get away from them, as the case may be. Emotions are the dynamics that help us do all that stuff. And so our brains are wired with a whole set of emotions, anger being one of them, grief, fear, um, love, and so on. These are all emotions wired into our brains. Um, children who get the message that some aspects of their emotional life is not acceptable to their parents will necessarily suppress it so as to be able to connect with the parents because the connection with the parents what well, in psychological terms we call the attachment relationship and you 
mentioned attachment theory, John Bowlby, and so on. Well, the Buddhist—it's uh, just the opposite of the Buddhist that word. You know, Buddhist attachment. It, it is different. Yes. It, it, Buddhist attachment is an excessive clinging to something. Mm -hmm. The attachment, in the psychological sense, is the belonging to somebody, is the connection with somebody. And actually, what happens is, this is what gets interesting: is that if you don't get your attachment needs met as an infant, as a child, you tend to be attached to external things later on as a way of compensating. So the lack of one attachment leads to the mm -hmm. other kind of attachment. Mm -hmm. Now, when the child has to suppress their emotions for the sake of belonging, they lose connection with themselves. They lose their authenticity. And now, for example, I mean, I'm not saying this is true for you, but theoretically, uh, if you're worried about what the people think of you, you might go into a situation. You probably don't do this, but conceivably, a person like that might go into a situation. Something is being discussed, and he's got a point of view that's different from what is being voiced by everybody else. Mm -hmm. And for the sake of being accepted, they'll suppress their own opinion, their own true self, in order to be accepted. Yeah. Then, when that happens, there's a sense of shame and disconnect afterwards. You know, and so authenticity, or some people will try to be very, very nice, uh, so that's to be accepted by others. And so they suppress the healthy anger, so they don't protect themselves. Mm -hmm. That suppression and as a as science has shown so that the disconnection from our authenticity has significant uh, health impacts on our mental health and our physical health and on our view of ourselves you know and at a certain point it's not unusual for people in their 40s and their 50s to start saying well whose life am i leading anyway mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting your point about uh, the two meanings of authenticity the the kind of bulby meaning and the and the Buddhist meaning, because when I first saw in your book that you were pairing attachment and authenticity, you were going to discuss them together. My first thought was what inhibits authenticity is a can be attachment to esteem in the Buddhist sense, right? Like like uh um you know just and yeah. and, and social media really amplifies this right because you have a, an opinion you want to express on twitter if it rubs people the wrong way there's an avalanche of negative feedback so it really becomes a vivid thing but anyway my, my point is i i initially was thinking of the one kind of attachment the kind that, that uh the the buddha says uh should be avoided um you you mean attachment in the other sense at the same time you wouldn't deny uh, the dynamic I'm describing, I'm sure, as a, you know, a, as an issue, right? No, words, it's an issue. I mean, yeah. my own yeah. my own attachment to having people think well of me and to want me led me to behaviors that was not helpful for me or for my family. Mm -hmm. So that I totally get the Buddhist concept of attachment. And I say that it's a response to lack of proper attachments that comes early in, in early in life. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned community and how natural our kind of thirst for community is. I mean, we evolved in communities, uh, and and you discuss how, in many ways, uh, the modern environment uh, is kind of hostile to our quest for community. Right? Do you want to talk well, about the, that? Sure. Well, so the there's um. I quote Noam Chomsky in his book, who says that every society has either an implicit or an explicit um, view of human nature. 
Now, what is the view of man nature in capitalist society? The view of human nature is that people are selfish, greedy, aggressive, competitive individualists. That's the view of human nature. As a matter of fact, in common parlance, when somebody does something selfish or greedy or manipulative, what do we say? We say, oh, that's just human nature. Interestingly enough, when somebody does something generous or kind or open-hearted, nobody says, oh, that's just human nature. Mm -hmm. Because our view of human nature is this particular competitive against selfish um, image. Now, that reflects the ideology of capitalism. But is it actually true? Because as we evolved, our needs were for connection, collaboration, community, care, connection. These are actual needs. So the very idea that this society promulgates about human nature was contrary to human needs. And uh, to the point where people in positions of incredible power are quite willing to destroy the earth for the sake of their own advancement and power and profit. And we think that's normal. That's the norm. So uh, in its very conception of human nature, which is just a reflection of its own needs, this system imposes a view of ourselves on us that, that ends up hurting us. And I often ask people, if you want to know what your true nature is, I mean, let me ask you, um, have you ever done something selfish and grasping, grasping or manipulative? Ever done anything like that ever in your life? <laughs> you might say. Okay. Well, join the club. <laughs> uh, have you also ever done things that are open-hearted and generous and kind? Yeah. <laughs> he, says, he, says a bit, he says a bit hesitantly, but, but I'm sure you have. Now, when you do the kind, open-hearted thing, what does your body feel like? When are you more at ease? Right. That feels great. Yeah. That's your nature. Right. That's why it feels so great. You know, and, and that, so that the whole conception that we're sold of who we are is a false conception. And then we're supposed to live our life like that. And our schools are designed to promote competition and to elevate the winners and denigrate the losers, to punish the kids who are traumatized and therefore have trouble learning and trouble paying attention and trouble behaving. And our workplaces are like that. And the whole image conscious social media that you've talked about is designed to elevate success and to ridicule failure. Uh, that's the culture that we live in. That's why I call it toxic. Yeah, the uh, and you think you think it's worse than it used to be. I, I mean, you think it's worse than it was in the recent past. Well, what I can say is the the, the American Surgeon General, uh, Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy, is about to publish a report on loneliness. Loneliness has become an epidemic in, in Western societies. In Britain, they've had to uh, um, uh, um, appoint a minister for loneliness. And loneliness has been rising documentably um, in the last 40, 50 years since the rise of Reaganite and Thatcherite neoliberalism and neoliberalist economics. And uh, 
So there's the real, and in terms of as inequality rises in a society which is rising rapidly in the society, ill health rises. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the United States last year, I don't know if most people realize this, but in the United States last year, um, I think something like twice as many people died of overdoses as died in the Vietnam, Afghan, and Iraq war put together. Mm. I'm talking about American deaths now. Mm-hmm. I don't talk about three million Vietnamese who died or the half a million Iraqis who died. You know, no. And those numbers keep going up. So it is getting worse. More children are committing suicide. More children are being diagnosed with ADHD and depression and anxiety and <clears throat> so-called oppositional defiant disorder and this, that, and the other. Now, either we can assume that the rise in mental health diagnosis is, you know, and, and the New York Times and the New Yorker both had hand-wringing articles last year about the rise in childhood suicides. What's driving it? My God, they're just not looking at the evidence. You know, what's driving it is the stress on the parenting environment and the lack of support and connection and attachments that our children are receiving when parents are so stressed. And if you look at stress levels, they're much higher than they used to be. So yeah, it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. In the uh, midst of all this wealth. If there was a single policy change you could make that would help, what what would that be? Well, given my, um, not just mine, given mine, but the research evidence that it all begins early in life, the single most important policy change would be the the attention and support that we give to new parents mm-hmm. so that they can provide a relatively non-stressed, connected, non-anxious environment to their kids. That'd be the biggest one. Okay. Well, I want to uh, just touch again briefly on this uh, authenticity idea. So part of authenticity for you, maybe a big part, is, is kind of being in in touch with your uh, feelings, uh, giving valid expression to your feelings. Uh, you wouldn't deny, I'm sure, that there's uh, such a thing as uh, a, a not entirely wholesome expression of a, of a feeling or feelings that that shouldn't be mindlessly uh, followed. And and maybe one way to talk about that a little is is you uh, the word anger there's a part of the book where you you list these uh i don't know four or five words that begin with a that that uh are important uh authenticity agency acceptance and anger yeah. is one of them anger yeah. a lot of people would not have uh, you know if you showed them those four words and said which one of these doesn't belong right they'd say well anger that's the bad one the other one's the good one you have a more nuanced view on anger right yeah so there's healthy anger and unhealthy anger okay okay so there's three ways to deal with it. Now, the Buddha, by the way, um, if you read his uh, sutras, he didn't say, don't be angry. He said, when the monk is angry, he recognizes that there's anger in me. He didn't say it suppresses it. He also do, doesn't say that you acted out on somebody else. Mm-hmm. He says the, the monk recognizes that there's anger in him. So healthy anger is a response to a boundary violation. All animals do it. You step into an animal's space and they feel threatened. You're going to see it. Don't come near me. You know, it's healthy. It actually saves violence, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, that's healthy anger. Now, the two unhealthy ways to deal with anger 
number one is to repress it. Now, children will do that if their parents give them the message that little good little kids don't get angry. And the real message is angry little kids don't get loved. Then the child will suppress the that, that healthy anger. They'll become nice and compliant and end up with autoimmune disease or cancer. Because the health, repression of anger is a common dynamic amongst people with chronic illness. I've seen it. It's also documented in the literature. The other unhealthy anger is when you sort of don't deal with your anger on a regular basis, and you, and, but you, it's like a, a pressure cooker, and all of a sudden you blow your top. In fact, that's exactly what we call it, mm -hmm. blowing their top, like a volcano. Well, that kind of rage actually is not only unhealthy for others, it's unhealthy for you. Uh, studies show that in the aftermath of a rage episode, your risk of a stroke or a heart attack double for the next two hours because your blood pressure goes up, your blood vessels get narrower, your clotting factors increase, and so on. And not to mention the impact. And also, rage, if you ever experienced a rage episode, and believe me, I have, um, it doesn't dissipate itself when it's done its job. In fact, the more rageful you get, the more circuits are recruited. It's You know, we talk about epileptic fits. We also talk about fits of rage, mm -hmm. literally a fit where more and more of the brain circuitry is recruited. So rather than healthy anger, which says, you're in my space, get out. And once it's done, it's done. Rage magnifies itself. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's terrible for your heart and your blood pressure and so on. So those are the three. Um, what we're talking about in the four A's is healthy anger, okay. which says, you're in my space, get out. That's all. Okay. so. Uh, maybe we should sit, we should spend a little time uh, on the on the kind of therapeutic side. You, there's a technique called compassionate inquiry yeah. that that uh, you've developed. Uh, do you want to talk a little about how that works? These these kinds of this kind of interrogation of yourself, I guess. Interrogation is might not be the word that we use. Well, not in the yeah, not in the uh, in the common Hollywood sense. No. Yeah. Um, Self inquiry. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, um, first of all, I think, again, to go back to Buddhism, I mean, I think the, not that Buddhism is the be all and the end all of everything, it's just, I know that's, we've both looked at Buddhist literature and you studied it in, and you probably practice it a lot more than I do, which is minimal, uh, to non-existent. But, um, <laughs> but uh, compassion is a big word in Buddhism. And um, <clears throat> compassion is important because um, for healing to happen, there needs to be safety. So that if I'm going to inquire into myself, I also have to provide myself with safety. If I was going to help you, I have to provide you with safety. If you don't feel safe, like if I said to you, why did you do that? How likely are you to really mm -hmm. inquire? You're going to get defensive. But if I said to you, hmm, I wonder why you did that. And, but I wasn't attacking you or judging you. Then you might be open to looking at why you happen to have done this or that or the other. Mm -hmm. Same with the self. So compassion is essential. The inquiry part is just being curious. So recognizing if I behave in a certain way, but it wasn't, I didn't deliberately do it. I just did it. because It was almost automatic. It's really worth asking, well, why did I do that? 
Mm-hmm. What was I? What was I acting out? What was going on inside me at the time? So compassion inquiry is a therapeutic method that I've helped to develop, and we've taught it. To, it's a it's, it's online, and it's, it's a participatory one year, very intensive, not for the faint-hearted, uh, interactive course. We've had about three thousand students in eighty countries in the last three years, therapists and doctors and people who work with people. But it's also a technique that we teach people to apply to themselves. Mm-hmm. Some of those questions that come up in a because because my fundamental assumption is that the answers are inside all of us, that the mm-hmm. truth is inside all of us, mm-hmm. and what keeps us from our own truth is our own traumatic imprints, our defenses, the stories we tell ourselves, the negative self-beliefs that we hold. And we can get to the source of all that, we get to the truth of it by asking the right questions. So that's the essence of it. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a part of the book, and I think this may be under compassionate inquiry, but I'm not quite sure. You encourage people to ask themselves like about uh, whether they're having difficulty saying no, yeah. right? Uh, are mm-hmm. you somebody who has trouble saying no? Not anymore. <laughs> Believe me, I get all I get all these invitations and requests, and I'm just, I just. But it, but it was an issue with you. Oh yeah, it was a big issue. I could have been. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. No matter how busy I was as a doctor, somebody went to somebody went to my patient, or another pregnant woman wanted to come to me for delivery. I'd see that as a badge of badge of honor, and I'd say yes. Mm-hmm. Damn the impact on my own stress levels and damn the impact on my family. So I had great trouble saying no. Or when I became an author and speaker, invitations. Oh, there's somebody wants me. Mm-hmm. Let me catch the first jet plane, you know? So I had great trouble saying no. As a matter of fact, I've written a book called When the Body Says No, and it's about how when people have trouble saying no, the body will say it in the form of physical illness, like autoimmune mm-hmm. disease, cancer, and my wife, said to me no more than five years ago he said she said buddy you've written a book called when the body says no no you better write one called when the wife says no because i'm not putting up with this anymore uh, so yeah i've had great trouble saying no i don't anymore okay well yeah it is hard uh and uh i think a lot of us wrestle with it so i wanted i i promised that uh we would get back to this uh i think i promised uh the uh, the psychedelics issue. You are one of the few people, I think, who can say that they have in any sense uh, been overthrown in a coup sponsored by shamans in uh, in South America. But that kind of happened to you, right? So you were doing this therapeutic thing with ayahuasca, this well-known psychedelic drug. And then uh, tell, tell the story of what happened. Well, I do make a distinction. It's not a drug. It's a medicine. Okay. And- and the difference is, I've taken Prozac, for example, for depression. Mm-hmm. That's a drug. And I'm not using that in a pejorative sense. But it's a substance meant to change my biology as long as I'm taking it. A medicine is meant to heal. Mm-hmm. It's not meant to keep taking it. It's meant to promote healing. So this is it's an important distinction. Prozac will help with the symptoms of depression, but it will not address the original trauma that caused the depression in the first place. And medicine will help you work through the trauma. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. So about 12 years, and I've been working with ayahuasca. I was introduced to it and saw its value. 
and I be, you know, I'm quite well known as a kind of a adept leader of ayahuasca retreats. I'm not a shaman. I don't hand out the medicine. I don't chant. I don't, you know, but I help people prepare for the ceremony. I help them formulate their intentions. I help them understand and integrate their experience afterwards. So the, what you're referring to in the book is the chapter where I describe my trip to Peru, to the Amazon jungle, where I was going to work with some shamans. The participants were doctors and medical people and health people from around the world. They came to work with the famous Gabor Mate on ayahuasca, and the shamans did one ceremony, and they said, no, you're too full of stress and darkness, and that darkness affects the others. We can't have you in these ceremonies. So they fired me from my own retreat, and uh, my ego didn't like it a bit. But, but you know, I knew they were right, because I'd just come from a long speaking trip. I was stressed to the max, and rather than dealing with it, I was trying to bowl my way through it again, you know? Mm-hmm. And I can kind of do it, but there's an energy there that undermines the process, because I haven't taken care of myself. And so they assigned one of them to work with me, and they worked with the others. Everything worked out beautifully, but I was fired from my own retreat. But that led to something, uh, yeah. I so so you you spent time, in, you spent the week or however long it was, in more or less in in seclusion with, I guess, uh, one or more shaman. But but doing the ayahuasca thing yourself, yeah. and this was like a transformative. Well, maybe that's putting it too strongly, but a very helpful experience for you. Um, yeah, it, it was 10 days and every second night we had a ceremony. So I had five private ceremonies with a shaman all to myself with a translator present. Um, while the others were, the other five shamans worked with the, the rest of the group. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm a tough, I have a tough skull, you know, like I, I, I really have developed a strong mind, which is a response to the therapist once said to me that if your parents don't know how to hold you. Do you develop the mind to hold yourself with? So I tend to be very rationalistic and very linear in my thinking and um, a tough cookie, you know? And so other people, they meditate. Some of the people, they meditate or go through spiritual retreats or do a psychedelic and they have big breakthroughs. For me, that's a lot tougher. Mm-hmm. And But it did finally happen. And I had a huge breakthrough and a very deep experience that really gave me a different sense of myself and the world that I was living in and the world that I had created with my mind. I wouldn't say that it transformed me because it's not like I came back as an enlightened being, far from it. But uh, it also didn't leave me. Mm-hmm. It's a touch point. It's just like it's a, it's an opening that I can return to. Mm-hmm. So that was, it was very important. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so before we go, I mean, I'm going to give you a chance to say anything else you want about the book. Before we do that, I'd like to be self-indulgent one more time uh, and uh, ask you a question about, so I'm writing a book on cognitive empathy, by which I mean just perspective taking, not like emotional empathy, not feeling people's pain, not even necessarily caring about them, just understanding their perspective. And I have this view that like if there's one kind of skill or tendency you could change that would make the world a much better place, uh, this would be a good candidate. Just just understanding how other people view the world. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just wondering how you react 
to that. Any anything at all you would say about the, the difficulty of doing this or the value of doing it or or techniques that help or whatever? Well, the value is immense. If you look at the uh, <clears throat> political discourse in your country or even mine these days, if you look at any situation, um, um, in the world where there's conflict, whether it's in Eastern Europe, whether it's in the Middle East, um, there's such refusal to even entertain, let alone understand, or empathize with the other, the other view, the other the view of the other, mm -hmm. you know? So, first of all, it's important. Secondly, it's extraordinarily difficult. Um, because, again, to, to go back to the Buddha, uh, the first sentence in his Dhammapada, his collection of sayings, is that everything is thought in the lead. So basically, with our minds, we create a certain worldview. Somebody's a different worldview, our own view of the world doesn't even let it in. It kind of filters it out, censors it. So even then, they don't even, you don't, we don't even hear what they're saying, let alone understand it, let alone empathize with it. So it's very, very difficult. And we get attached to our point of view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, like, if you're attached to your patriotism, for example, well, that can be a positive thing if you love your country and if you're really willing to protect it, that's a good thing. But often that's not how it shows up. You know, it shows up as a un kind of an unquestioning acceptance or whatever's done in the name of your country. Mm-hmm. There's been so much evil perpetrated in the world by your country, by mine, by Russia, by England, by, by any country. You know, in the name of patriotism, because people are so attached and they can't let go of it. Attached means that their own self-concept depends on identifying with this larger entity. As soon as we identify, and identify, the word identify means, it's, again, it comes from a Latin where the idem means the same and for to make, when I make myself the same as my country, I won't even question my country. Mm -hmm. And I'll put up with the worst kind of crimes committed. I mean, I've just received the book, arrived yesterday, it's called Many Holocausts. And it's about the cost of Amer the American empire, mm -hmm. the world, including with the indigenous population, the genocide that happened here the slavery, the foreign wars, you know, I mean, I don't mean to get more political here than necessary, but, you know, we, at, at the Australia Open right now, the tennis tournament that's going on right now, you can't show Russian flags. Yeah. So when the Russian players are playing, they can't show the Russian flag. It's okay to show the American flag. Now, the Russians have killed a lot of Ukrainians. It's a war crime. Yeah. The Americans killed half a million Iraqis. But everybody can carry American flags. And Australia participated in that invasion of Iraq. You can carry Australian flag. Now, this is just blindness. And the, uh, and, and the Iraq war was an illegal war as, as, as the invasion of Ukraine was. It was a violation of international law. And, you know, at Wimbledon, they didn't let uh, Daniel, I think his name is Medvedev, play. Yeah. He, and, and I think he had come out against the invasion yeah, of yeah. Ukraine. I mean, it, it, it's just. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm talking. So this is what I'm talking about. There's this kind of, we could talk a lot yeah. about these wars and, you know, um, I mean, 
one could ask legitimately, I think, who has the right to feel more threatened, the Russians by the Western military buildup in Ukraine or the Americans by whatever is happening a billion miles away in, in Iraq. You know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. What I'm, now I'm not making political comments here on the wars. All I'm saying is the double standard. Mm -hmm. And that is a result of identifying with one's country. And whatever we do is okay. Whatever they do is not okay. And, so, and of not understanding how they would look at what you're doing, not okay, exercising their cognitive empathy. Not even asking mm -hmm. what they would look at. And I see this in, I've seen this in Eastern Europe. I've seen this in, um, in the Middle East, everywhere. So what you're talking about, I think you call it cognitive empathy, did you? Mm -hmm. that, that, that capacity to the willingness, the openness to look at the other person's point of view, to receive it, to understand it, and then to consider your own position. Mm -hmm. Well, it's lacking. It's very important, and it's so difficult. And the difficulty is both based on traumatic imprints as children, because we get very defensive, and, and also because of the cultural imprints. So, I, yes, it's both difficult and essential. Okay. Now, anything else you want to say about your book? Any any major things you think we've missed? You know, it's a very... <clears throat> I can be self-serving. It's a very rich book. It covers so many different topics. It shows the unity of all these topics. So it's not randomly meandering, mm -hmm. but I talk about pregnancy and childbirth and parenting and childhood trauma. And I talk about economics and politics and, and, and spirituality and, and psychology and uh, health and illness, physical and mental and addictions. Epigenetics. Epigenetics and, and how all this is part of one universal process. It's all one. And we can't understand any of it in isolation from the others. So that's the essence of the book. Um, the response to it has been more than gratifying. It's going to be published so far in 28 other languages. Mm. It's this week, it's 11th, and next week it'll be its 12th week on New York Times bestsellers list. In Canada, it's been the number one or two best-selling non-fiction book. I was, I was displaced. I, I say I, my son Daniel and I, we co-wrote it. We were displaced this week by Harry, you know, the Prince Harry. Oh. Every, 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 everybody's wild about Harry these days, as, as the old song used to go. Yeah, well, that, he, but, he, he's paid a heavy price to be in that position. Uh, and, he, and, and that <laughs> book is also about trauma, by the way. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, uh, in Hungary, which is my birth country, it's been the number one nonfiction book since its publication in September. So it's the response has been really gratifying. And I think what it shows is that people really feel the wounds and the pains and the dysfunctions, and they're looking to understand them and they're looking mm -hmm. for a way out. So this is, you know, this is why I think the book has achieved the success. I just hope it'll continue to go because I wrote this. It was a hard job, 10 years. I had my own panic, my own um, difficulties writing it at some point. I found my butt pressure was going up because I was over-identified with it. So it wasn't just a process. It was like me. So if the book wasn't going well, then what about me? You know, I mm -hmm. had to let go of that one. Yeah. But it was tough. And so I hope people read it. That's the only thing I want to say about it. Yeah. Well, I encourage that. And I promised uh, that in exchange for the... Uh... 15 minutes of free therapy you gave me, I'd let you hold it up again. So if you want to, <laughs> hold it okay. up again. That, that That's better than me sending you a check. Okay, well, sure. Thank you. So this is what there the book it is. 
The myth is normal. It is a very attractive uh, cover, and yeah, I, love, I love the cover. Yeah, it's, it's, it like almost says, "Read me," you know. Yeah, it's 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 demanding that you read it, and and the subtitle is "Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a and, Toxic and, Culture." That's correct. So thank you so much, Gabor. Uh, great talking to you, and and continue good luck with it. Oh, it's a great pleasure to speak with you, and thank you for giving me this platform.